just as a reminder too, at the completion of the scripture, I will say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and you guys will respond saying, thanks be to God. So we're reading this morning from Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now is the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, I ask that just as we sit in this story this morning, that um, we just won't look away or move on out of convenience or discomfort. Um, that we will just allow ourselves to recognize the depths of our own brokenness as we see it reflected in this story as well and the deep, deep depths of your love for us. Um, you endured all this darkness so that we could be free to walk in light. Um, I just pray you'll just renew our minds with your word this morning as Nick teaches and that may continue into this next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you so much, Emily. <clears throat> Christianity, following Jesus, what we call Christianity. Christianity is the only major religion in the world that as its central event is the humiliation of its God. This is my favorite opening line of any book that I've ever read. It comes from the book Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley, and I want to read it again. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. And what Shelley is doing is he's setting the tone for the book of understanding the 2,000 years of church history. And, but we have to begin, we have to start with the centerpieces recognizing 
what this story, the church story, yes, in Shelley's book, but like the Christian story, the kingdom story, is really about. And at its focal point, at its centerpiece, is the humiliation of God. God putting on flesh, John 1 says. Moving into the neighborhood, becoming like us, suffering shamefully and dying by the hands of Roman soldiers. You see, at the center of our belief system or our worldview, what we believe to be true about the world is that our King Jesus was like shamefully humiliated in a small back room by people who did not hold back but wanted to inflict as much pain and suffering and shame as possible. And as we look at today's passage and the rest of our like Lenten journey toward the cross, we must remember what like the cross actually is. Of our home and maybe even like practice the sign of before or after prayers. But to our like Jewish ancestors in the ancient Near East, the cross was not any like sign of religiosity. The cross was like, a, if anything, like a sign of politic and a sign of empire. It was the sign of Rome. Because in the time of Jesus, the cross had nothing to do with religion. It had no sacred nor spiritual meaning. The cross was a picture not of holiness or of God, but of empire and of politics. The cross was used to kill thousands and thousands of people in Rome. It was Rome's preferred method for, like, state-sanctioned killing. And it was a sign of imperial strength, often killing terrorists or those leading uprising against the people of Rome. Because, yes, the cross was used to, like, torture while killing. But the cross was also used to, like, breed social conformity in the people of that day. People were not crucified in private, but in public, so all could see. And the clear message being sent from Rome to anyone that is watching is that, like, one day every traitor will bow a knee to Rome. So often we think of Jesus' defining moment in the cross as his death, which is true, but I want to think about the way Jesus was introduced to the cross, likely as a child seeing people be hauled off to be crucified outside the city. The cross wasn't foreign to Jesus. It was something he was raised with. And, and as we're talking about, as a declaration to all people in the ancient Near East that like Rome would rule, or how Rome would say it, Rome would have peace at whatever cost. The phrase Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, would always be brought at any cost, even if that meant continued death and destruction for the sake of the peace of Rome. It reminds me of a line from one of my favorite Broadway shows, Hamilton. If you're familiar with the show, uh, it's about like the founding fathers pulling away from England and beginning their own story. And there's a comedic character, King George in the story, who pops in occasionally. And he has this line, his first entry, and he says, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Da-da-da-da-da. But in the same sort of way, that's what Rome is doing. I will protect you 
even if it means I have to kill everyone you care about. Come to depend on us. We will keep you safe because we will use violence to ensure that no one rises up against Rome. And Rome's, like, desire was not to just kill the enemy, but to destroy any, like, perception of resistance against it. So it's with like that picture in the backdrop, that is our like canvas behind us that we come into today's way and handed him over to Pilate. If you were here last week, Brandon talked and walked us through what the Sanhedrin is. It's kind of like the religious supreme court of the Jewish world in that time. And how in this unique uh, circumstance, they broke all of their own rules to ensure they got what they wanted which was Jesus found guilty without witness, without like proper, proper judicial procedures, none of that, all thrown out the door to ensure that like Jesus would be captured, contained, and ultimately killed. So the chief priests, elders, and teachers made their plans, handed Jesus over to Pilate, and this is where the like making their plans thing comes into play because the Jewish community does not just rule themselves. They are oppressed at this time by the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish community, the Sanhedrin, actually doesn't have the authority to inflict the death penalty on Jesus. That belongs, that authority belongs to Rome, not to them. And so they build a plan and come over to like, they come over to Pilate's house or where Pilate is. Think of like the Sanhedrin as the local government going to the federal government sort of way. And that's not a perfect analogy because all analogies fall short, but whatever. But that's what's happening here. The local authority of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish community is going to the federal authority of the Roman Empire um, and trying to get Jesus crucified, trying to get Jesus killed. But what's interesting about the Sanhedrin and about the Roman Empire as revealed in this portion of the story is we see that like justice is never a concern of anyone in the group. No one's concerned about like an innocent man being killed. What everyone is concerned about is their own position, their own prominence, and their own power. So the Sanhedrin takes Jesus to Pilate, who's the Roman governor over that area, and he's not normally in town, but during the feasts and the festivals, Pilate comes to Judea to make sure nothing goes wrong, nothing goes awry. And the Sanhedrin show up at his house with bound Jesus, and they give, likely, Pilate some paperwork, an accusation of sorts. And they hand Jesus over to Pilate, and Pilate probably reads his accusation, and he looks at Jesus. And he says these words, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And this question is actually really important to the story. When Jesus was brought and captured by the Sanhedrin, tucked away at the chief priest's house, and they're accusing him, they're not asking him questions about kingship, they're asking him questions about, are you the Messiah? Or are you the son of God? Or are you going to tear down the temple and rebuild it? They're getting after religious questions. They're asking Jesus, the Sanhedrin's asking Jesus, like, where do you fit in Israel's story? Are you proclaimed son of man, son of... But what Pilate cares about is Roman Empire. 
Pilate has no interest in the religious laws or practices of the Jewish people. He doesn't care. Pilate cares about protecting Rome and protecting himself. So the accusation the Sanhedrin hands to Pilate is that Jesus of Nazareth declares himself to be a king. And this word king, oddly enough, is more correct in describing Jesus than the Sanhedrin or Pilate could have ever known. It's why Jesus actually responds with a weird sort of quip when Pilate asks him this question. Jesus says, you have said so. You have said so, which feels like this tongue-in-cheek way of Jesus saying, you don't even really know what you're asking me. Because what Pilate is asking about is rebellion and overthrowing Rome and controlling a contingent of people to usurp Roman rule or influence or culture or power. And that, of course, is not what Jesus is about. Jesus is answering by saying something like, sure, something like that, but not possibly in the way you think kings and kingdoms actually work. Because what we see here 2,000 years later is the declaration of Jesus to be ushering in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a robust part of what we believe and even what we call gospel, that the kingdom of God, or maybe said differently, like God's power in God's people is taking place on earth. And that sort of kingdom is very different than an empirical power or an empirical kingdom. For 2,000 years since Jesus introduces us to the like breaking in the kingdom of God is near type language we see in Mark 1, for 2,000 years we have seen empirical kingdoms rise and fall. The Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom isn't around anymore. Worldly empires will rise and worldly empires will fall, but Jesus' kingdom has been immovable for 2,000 years. Jesus' kingdom continues to reach and grow and flourish and have influence on earth as it is in heaven as we see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. But part of that is because Jesus' kingdom is this like, is not a kingdom of power in a worldly sort of way. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It looks nothing like we would expect it to. It looks inverse to the way the worldly systems and worldly powers are set up to protect themselves, move themselves forward and advance their own agenda. The way of Jesus and his kingdom is more about preferring others in self-sacrificial love, protecting others, taking the influence and the power and the things that I do have in the world and not just using them for my own gain, but using them to advance the good of others. That's the biblical definition of like justice. That's what justice means, taking my, like, taking my power and position and choosing to use that in a way that advances the good for others. That's very different than the kingdoms of this world. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. Again, completely different than what the worldly political system is built on and built for. Jesus' kingdom is built on love. 
And many of us sitting in this room have been following Jesus maybe for like decades, lots and lots of decades. And for some portion of our life, we've come to believe that like God's kingdom is built upon something else other than love. Maybe it's your church experience. Maybe it's your family of origin. I don't, I don't know everyone's stories, but I know my story, and I know a, enough stories in this room to know that like often when we think of the word Christian, we don't think of the word love. When we think of God's kingdom breaking in, we don't think of love, like God-centered love, self-sacrificial love. And the invitation to follow in the way of the kingdom is to follow in the way of Jesus, which is like other-centered love, God-centered love. And this, when Jesus like responds to Pilate, the chief priests continue and the Sanhedrin continue to throw accusations at him. And in verse 4, Pilate says, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. And verse 5 says, but Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. There's something happening here in this room, in this story, at this time, that where Pilate says, like, Jesus, defend yourself. Aren't you going to respond? And Jesus, in his silence, says, I don't play by these rules. I don't play by the rules of kingdoms, earthly kingdoms. I don't play by rules of governors and princes and Sanhedrins. I don't play by these sorts of rules. I'm not going to, I'm going to be silent. And, and the silence here strikes Pilate in a unique way. The silence here amazes Pilate, is what the Scriptures say. And so often, just as I was contemplating that this week, so often in my own life, and I assume yours too, if I'm wrong, that's okay, show me grace, but I, I assume that so often we are running around playing by a different sort of rules than Jesus' rules or a different sort of kingdom than Jesus' kingdom, operating from like a different place in life, whether it be identity or the things that we love or the things that we cherish, but, but the invitation to follow Jesus is to live a different sort of way. It's actually to become like a different sort of human, to be like, to, to demonstrate life in the kingdom here on earth, or as a friend of mine says, like, we are people of the future. Think kingdom eternal. We are people of the future, but in the present. So how we're invited to live is not just bound by the circumstances in front of us. How we're invited to live is like trusting in the presence and the goodness of God. And that quite literally should change everything. Changes the way I show up to work on Monday. It changes the way I interact with my coworkers. It changes the way that I, I like am a good friend to my friends. It changes the way I parent my children. It changes the way I love and forgive my spouse. It changes my habits of drinking. It cha- like it changes everything. Because the rules that I play by are not the rules of this world. The things that guide, and that, that word rules may bother you, I'm sorry if it does. The things that guide and inform my life are not the things of this world. 
They're the things of the kingdom. That's what guides and informs Jesus' life. It's what allows him to be silent in front of Pilate because it doesn't play by the, the things that guide Pilate's life or the things that guide the Sanhedrin's life. And so with this information, Pilate now has to make decisions. He has to move forward and figure out what he's going to do with the Sanhedrin and Jesus. Um, and we know that Pilate doesn't think Jesus is guilty of the accusation, accusation that the Sanhedrin is making. If Pilate thought that Jesus was an issue for Rome, Pilate would have had Jesus crucified. But we don't see Pilate doing that. Other places in the gospel, we see Pilate talking to his wife and going like, this is a bad idea. We probably shouldn't do this. But there's really no way out because they're bound here. They're bound by the Sanhedrin. They're bound by the influence of people rather than the influence of God. It picks up in verse 6. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Um, as an act of grace, this comes for, as an act of grace or perceived grace from Rome to Judea, that during the feast of Passover, that Rome would release a prisoner back to the people. So there's a man named Barabbas who's in custody. He's, I think, like... He, He's, he's a murderer, but he's like an insurrectionist, nationalist murderer. Like Jews actually, many Jews would think of him as heroic because he's fighting against Rome and for the Jewish people. And so this act of treason, of murder, lands him uh, in, in punishment and in, in captured by Rome. And, and Barabbas is headed toward being crucified. He's headed toward the cross. On the day that Jesus dies, there were always going to be three people hung on a cross. The crosses are ready. The plan is ready. But at this point, Pilate is confronted with a decision, is it Jesus of Nazareth or is it Barabbas? And he doesn't make the decision himself. He leaves it up to the crowd. And so Pilate has the idea to try and attempt to release the innocent man rather than standing up to the Sanhedrin himself. But the crowd chooses Barabbas. And the people, this mob of people, cry out for this radical nationalist who committed murder for the sake of the nation of Israel, who some, again, may think is a hero, but nonetheless a murderer. And they choose him over the person of Jesus. They choose Barabbas over the person of Jesus. Jesus' reputation in Jerusalem at this time is that, like, is that he's healing people and he's bringing hope to people. He's taking broken things and making them whole. But this group of people is so riled up by the chief priests, they give in to choosing Barabbas. And the story continues on. In verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. 
Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And Pilate is that everyone in the story, apart from Jesus, is only after one thing. Every character in this story is out to just defend themselves. And sometimes I think these are the rules we play by too. Like we move through our day just trying to defend ourselves trying to convince ourselves that we're enough or whatever it may be, but we're trying to just like stay out of trouble enough that we get to tomorrow. But every character in this story is out to defend themselves except for Jesus. When it comes to defending himself, Jesus chooses willingly to remain silent. The reason the scribes, teachers, and Pharisees started this whole thing is to protect their religious piety and their standing in community to remain in control of interpretation of God's word and what's happening in the region. The reason Pilate yields Jesus to the mob is not to protect Rome. Rome is not in the business of killing, like, of killing innocent people. That's not their desire. But killing an innocent man at this point is good for Pilate. So Pilate yields Jesus to death because he wants to keep peace in the Jewish community so his reputation stays intact. And Barabbas receives like this get-out-of-jail-free card, is glad to walk to the mob who people called for, called for him. He has no interest in the truth. And Jesus, again, when asked by Pilate to defend, it, to defend himself, Jesus refuses to. And there's something sewn into this story that is like this deep, quiet resolve of strength that doesn't feel human in some ways. It is. It's human. It's empowered by the Spirit. But there's this invitation to see this like quiet strength in this story from Jesus and also to like learn and lean into like, God, how do I embody that too? How do I embody a strength or a quietness that is not like driven by the circumstances of this world, but is driven from communion and union with you, God? And the story doesn't end there. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace or the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The soldiers take Jesus away to the place where like the elite guards stay in the praetorium and they make a mockery. They humiliate God in the flesh. They struck him and spit on him, mocked him, mocked worshiping him. They took off his robe and put his clothes on him and led him out to be crucified. And what we want to notice in this particular writing from Mark, who focuses, you'll, you'll, you'll see when you read the story, he focuses very little on the physical torture of Jesus, very little. The word scourged or the word beaten is used. 
very little on the word or on the torture of Christ. But what Mark does want to focus is like the deep level of shame that Christ endures. Everything that the soldiers do, and this is not an exhaustive list, there's more, but everything that the soldiers do is to like bring shame upon Christ. Jesus is shamed by Rome as much as you human, humanly possibly could be. He is stripped and tortured, scourged, mockingly robed with royal colors, mockingly worshiped, mockingly praised, mockingly enthroned. But Jesus, and this is important again, is not yielding himself to the Romans or the Sanhedrin. Jesus here is yielding himself to the Father. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that like Jesus agrees to, yes, do the Father's will, even though that's not the thing he desires. And so from a place of shame, where Jesus is completely shamed here, and that's something that we have a hard time recognizing because we're not an honor-shame culture like so many cultures are in our world. We're about like justice, and that's beautiful, but like there's plenty of other beautiful cultures in the world that are more driven by honor-shame, and this resonates with them in a way that it takes work for us to resonate with. And that word shame is hard for us to like fully comprehend and understand, but it's even harder, like, like when we can read that Jesus is hit, we almost know what that feels like. But just as Emily prayed earlier, I don't, I don't want to move past the invitation to like notice and feel Jesus' level of shame here as shame is inflicted upon him. I almost want to like just take a moment and recognize that like God who came to earth in the person of Jesus was treated as horribly as a person could be by a group of soldiers he had no say against and still like knowing, knowing this is where he was going chose to remain silent when he had the opportunity to defend himself. Like that's, that's who God is. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. And in that same sort of way, I know, I know there's a lot of people in this room that have experienced like a high level of shame in their life. It's some portion in their story, their life has been overcome by shame and by guilt, by dishonor, or whatever word you're most comfortable with. And, and one of the invitations that we see as we read this text is that like our identity stays secure, not in the shame that we've experienced, but in who God says that we are. Who we are in Christ. Not that like, not that Jesus has like an aspect of his life where he experiences shame and then there's this other part of his life. Jesus is like one wholly bound together where the inside matches the outside. The cleanest parts and the worst parts are all together. And the invitation from this story as we see it is to become again like a different sort of human that is deeply comfortable with the times in life where we feel shamed or tortured or mocked or left out or not included or whatever the list is. 
that we are invited to become like a whole person, complete, as we studied the Sermon on the Mount, like be perfect as I am perfect were Jesus' words. And that doesn't mean morally perfect. What that means is that like you're a complete person. Like you, you're, the best way I can describe it is like what happens on the inside happens on the outside. That like who you really want to be is, is manifesting itself in your life. One who walks like entrusting grace rather than trying to prove worth because you've been harmed by shame. And just as we move toward closing, I want to read Isaiah 50, verse 5 through 9. We call this the servant song in Isaiah, and it paints a prophetic picture of one day what will happen. So this is Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's speaking of Jesus who hasn't come yet speaking prophetically of what will happen. Isaiah 50, verse 5. The sovereign Lord has spoken to me, and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting, because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who gives me justice is near, who will dare to bring charges against me now. Where are my accusers? Let them appear. See, the sovereign Lord is on my side. Who will declare me guilty? All my enemies will be destroyed like old clothes that have been eaten by moths. Because the kingdom of God is upside down, because it is not what we expect, because Jesus does not give himself to his circumstances, but he gives himself to the work that God has for him, he is not disgraced, Isaiah 50 says. He will not be put to shame. None of this activity that Jesus is experiencing is the first nor last words about Jesus' life. None of this, while it is embodied and present and real, it is not like the deep down true things about who Christ is and what he's been sent to do. Isaiah 50 says what is really true is that the sovereign Lord is on his side even when it doesn't feel like it. Whatever marks you have used in your life to identify who you are, the truth is that if you are in Christ, the dog. And this is Jesus' reason for moving toward the cross. Hebrews 12, verse 2 and 3 say, And let us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before Christ, that is why he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And what's difficult about teaching this text today is it's not like, here's three super easy applicable points, go and do them. 
That's not what this text is about. What this text is about is exposing some of the darkest moments in Jesus' life as he walks toward death on a cross. And then our invitation for today is to not look away, but look directly at these things as we reflect on Christ's love for us and then worship him. The hope is that our Lent experience is not that we just like become formed into something else. It's become formed into someone who worships Christ in all things, keenly aware of God's presence with us. And so I just want to real quickly speak to two things. If, if you've experienced some sort of shame or disgrace and darkness, humiliation or haunting, and that's part of your story. Know that like, that's not the ending of your story and Christ meets you there. Like you suffer with Christ. You are not alone in that. And you like, what's true about you is that like, the sovereign Lord, that God is on your side. And he stands in the midst of your hurt and your pain, your suffering and your shame and all the other like, struggles that we experience in this life. And God is not scared of it, and he doesn't want you to be scared of it either. And second, we look at this story, and we look at the life of Jesus. We look at these mocking scenes of the king of kings. He's the king of kings, and yet he, he willingly participates in something that leads him to being mocked by people who he created. Think about that for a second. And we allow ourselves to hurt for him. We allow the pain of shame and mockery to become real to us. And then from that reality about our God and about our King, we break out into love and adoration for Him. We worship Him. And not just in song, not just in word, but in every aspect of who we are that we become worshipers of Christ. We worship God in everything we do. So I just want to invite us to that. Like, that's our, that's our response today. It's to take these pictures of Christ that Mark gives us and then to worship him because of them. But it's really hard to not look away. Even have, like, the thought come to mind of Jesus looking at Peter from last week's teaching after Peter... Um, denies Christ three times, and then Jesus looks at Peter. In that same sort of way, um, we see this text and we see the reality of this happening to you, God, and you willingly saying yes to it for the joy that was set before you, which is life with us, life with your people. The desire that the scriptures reveal is like, it's not about us getting to you, God, the entire time you've been trying to get to us. God, you've always been pursuing your people. So I just pray that today, like we would allow ourselves to look onto this picture and allow ourselves to be found by your love. That we wouldn't like hide or turn away or look away but that we would be able to like come to you, say thank you, 
for willingly giving yourself to this, submitting yourself to this so you could have life with us. That's the, that's the like deepest desire of who you are. Just to have life with us, that Christ is in us and we are in him. And so God, we, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the story. And this is not just a story. We thank you that this was your life and that you gave it as an act of love for us. You submitted yourself to this for us, God. And so may your spirit pour out in this place and may we be like, may we be invited to like freely worship you in response to this. That we would put away like the hindrances and the obstacles leave our thoughts about lunch till later and just be present to you now, God. That's all you've ever wanted. We thank you that the kingdom is not like kingdoms of this world, but it is upside down. And it is on the move and you are doing things and moving in people's hearts and in people's lives. And we just ask now that God, you would move in ours as we desire to worship you. Have your way in us, Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Move in our midst.